Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 253, and today's guest is Colin Pacarariu, co-founder and CEO of Spatial. It's not every day that you get to interview someone who launched four product lines with Steve Jobs and the rest of the Apple exec team. So as a fan of all things Apple, let's just say I was a little excited for this interview. Colin's career has always been at the forefront of emerging technologies and trends. From his first stint at Apple, where he worked on software for the iMac and iBook, yes, that shell-shaped laptop, to his time at Handspring, where he helped bring the Trio, a first-generation smartphone, to market, to his return back to Apple to work on early iPhone software, iTunes Mobile, pre-HealthKit, Apple TV, and AirPlay, and on top of all this, he was also involved in lots of other startups. Well, the next frontier ahead for Colin is sound, and as a co-founder and CEO of Spatial, their goal is to redefine the human experience by creating virtual soundscapes where you work, where you play, and where you stay. The company recently announced its Series B round of funding, which was highlighted by Mike Gordon, president of Fenway Sports Group, The Craft Group, Marquee Sports Holdings, WS Development, and National Geographic Society. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like predictions for the future of immersive experiences at sporting events and concerts, all the great stories throughout his career at Apple, Handspring, and the various startups, including the question that I had to ask him about what it was like working with Steve Jobs, a deep dive into his latest company, Spatial, and how their technology works, plus a glimpse into the plans ahead for the company, advice on keeping a culture of innovation as a company scales, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that we have over 250 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, please go to VentureFizz.com slash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Colin. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. We have a lot to talk about. You are pro- probably uh, at the you are at the forefront of the whole mobile re- revolution across the different stages. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the really, really cool company that you're building now, Spatial. But to start things off, I wanted to talk about the future. Like I love going to sporting events. I love going to concerts. And I can tell there's a fundamental shift of those experiences. Like I think it's the Brooklyn Nets that have, you know, a whole meta version of what their universe of the basketball court could look like as a fan experience. So since I have one of the the, the, the thought leaders in this space, like what's your prediction on the future of these immersive experiences at live events? Yeah, so I'm a little biased in this. And I think, you know, the last couple of years has, has taught us a lot. And we've seen kind of the pros and cons of distributed everything, right? Like distributed human beings, work, um, events, socializing. And from my perspective, we can't wait to get back into real world experiences at scale. Um, I do think that obviously the digital aspects of this kind of help amplify those experiences, but there's a core visceral feel that you just miss if you're not along with human beings together. And that's, you know, technology aside, it's impossible to really replicate. And I think we can have variants of that experience. But uh, to me, we're really excited to amplify those experiences in real world spaces where human beings get back together. And, you know, I, I think this is an evolutionary thing. We, you know, we've 
adapted over millions of years to cues around the world, how we experience, uh, what we experience, other people. And obviously we're focused on sound, which is primal, um, but um, there's nothing like the energy of a live event, uh, whether it's sports, concerts, etc. And I think we have the real opportunity to really take that to another level uh, with what we're doing at Spatial. But um, again, NetNet, I'm super excited about this next phase and um, looking forward to putting the last few years behind us. Oh, I can't wait. Yes, to go to some live shows this summer is definitely something that I'm super excited about. All right, so let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Wow. Um, let's see how far back to go. So I actually, I was born in Romania. Um, so uh, kind of an interesting little history there. Uh, it was a very different era and my parents actually had to defect to the U.S. So it took them six years to get me out of the country. So I actually was raised by my grandmother um, and uh, remember meeting my mom and dad um, at JFK actually, which was a little bit weird because I was seven and a half years old at that point. And I'm like, who's this lady running down, you know, that's got this crazy beehive hairdo and it turns out to be my mom. And, you know, I'd only seen her billion pictures. So um, yeah, so pretty, pretty interesting little start. And then I grew up in um, Pennsylvania, kind of self-taught computer science. Uh, at the time there was no real computer science. So I just taught myself how to program and got into computers and um, kind of loved that. And, was the launching pad for the rest of the career. What was your first computer? Oh, geez. Um, let's see, had uh, inexpensive computers initially. So TRS-80, so learning some assembly programming underneath uh, BASIC, and then uh, pretty much anything with the 6502 chip in it. Um, you know, so long lineup of computers there. And uh, it was funny because it was back in these days, again, there were just like early computers in classrooms and it was always in the corner of the classroom and the teachers didn't know what to do with it. And I was like probably the one geek that would go out there and be like trying to figure out how to program them. So whatever it was like, you know, TRS-80s, whatever was available at the time, just trying to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Like uh, always I had a uh, Texas Instruments TI, TI-99-4A, which was, uh, oh, yeah. which was just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right. So, but so then you went to Pepperdine. So how did you end up on the West coast and, um, if I understood things correctly, you actually started a company while in college. I, I did. Well, the, the story of getting there. So I, I was growing in Pennsylvania, like I mentioned, and um, I I pretty much wanted to, to check out the West Coast. I've heard great things about California and I was going for computer science and got into UCLA, got into USC. And then, of course, somehow I have no idea back in those days how they find this out. There's, you know, there's no clicking on websites, social media and all this stuff. But somehow Pepperdine finds out I'm applying to these colleges and they send me this brochure, which, of course, has a view of the Malibu coastline. And, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, I was like, literally, I just like flipped through, found computer science in there. I'm like, yep, that's where I'm going. That was, I think, pretty much the decision process. So. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful campus. I've seen pictures. I haven't been, I've, I've been on campus at UCLA. I, I've just seen pictures of Pepperdine and I, I wouldn't have survived there. I, I would have not been able to attend class and would have flunked out. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically I had a side job where I was at a computer store, um, building computers, selling computers, training people on computers, just, you know, paying day-to-day -day bills with that. And um, 
just, uh, I kind of realized that I loved the business aspect of what I was doing. So I, I took this entrepreneurship class um, and ended up writing this business plan. And I was uh, young enough and dumb enough to think like, like, wow, this is a pretty cool idea. We should maybe start this as a business. So I found a partner and I started what was called Captured Images and um, kind of a, a fun intersection of early technology with pre-press publishing and the like um, really early Max first like pre-Photoshop version of Photoshop um, back when that was kind of in, in beta mode. And uh, we started that in a garage and um, I, I took a little bit of a different path some years later, but my partner ended up selling it about four or five years ago. And actually it was, you know, it was a business that lasted decades, which was just uh, kind of fun to be part of it from the very inception. All right. Well, so, you, but your first job out of school, so you were an IT area manager at Amgen. So, so what did that entail? Well, so what happened was I was at Captured Images. Um, my wife that I'm still with after now 34 years, um, she got pregnant. So our first daughter was on our way. And um, we kind of panicked because, you know, I hate to say it, but typical startup, we weren't paying ourselves anything. We were paying for other employees, vendors, trying to get this bootstrapped. And um, I just agreed with the partner and my partner. It made more sense for me to become an adult, so to speak, especially because I was going to be a father in a few months. And um, Amgen, uh, one of the early biotech companies, was uh, in the area in Thousand Oaks. Um, I was doing some consulting work, and they loved what I was doing, and they ended up hiring me. And you have to remember back then for biotech, there was, you know, it's kind of like the startup scene in that world was like 3,500 companies, I think, at the time. And probably about three made it to global scale, Amgen being one of them, Biogen and Genentech, right? And uh, it um, was a tremendous experience, but basically integrating global um, computer systems at the time when, you know, global networks were running at, I don't know, some, some fractional megabit per second. I forget exactly how slow it was, but it was brutal. And um, we made these systems work with Macs and Sun Spark stations. Very, very cool. Okay. So then you went on to get your master's degree and you landed at Apple. Yes. So the funny part, this, this is a great story. So I was at Amgen. So we're using Macs and I was probably that, that person that kept telling the team at Apple that how much they were screwing up with, I would say, enterprise class systems, which of course, Apple, you know, is kind of not their strong suit, I would say. And in 96, they're basically like, hey, we've got a new executive team. We're trying to turn the company around. You can help us in the enterprise side. Why don't you, instead of complaining about what we're doing wrong, why don't you help us fix it? And um, I fell for it. Um, and uh, I went there. And it, I have to say, it was um, in the first two months, I thought I made the worst career decision of my life. And this is something that I think still sticks with me. And I, I told my wife, I was just like, Monique, I think I'm, you know, this was the worst decision I ever made. I'm not staying here. I'm going to move on to something else. And she's like, you know what? Give it a year. Let's see what happens. And uh, sure enough, later that year, Gil Emilio probably makes the, I'll say the one good decision of his career, uh, maybe the decision, which was to buy next. And uh, that became, you know, the future history of Apple, right? And I mean, people don't remember this, uh, but we were weeks away from not making payroll. We had, you know, to lay off basically a third of the company. And um, it was just a brutal time. Uh, but 
honestly, the, some of the best experiences that still stick with me and resonate today. Yeah. So you were there for that magical period of time of Steve Jobs returning and the like essentially the, the reboot of what is now like the most highly like sought after company and most valued company and everything, most innovative company, everything. So uh, during that stretch, so you were uh, responsible for developer relations for the iMac and iBook? Yeah, so my, my primary role there was to try to get people to port software to the Mac at a time when literally nobody wanted to port software to the Mac, right? It was right. like, that sounds like a really bad business proposal. But I ended up working with a number of companies that we did that, uh, Palm included uh, at that time, IBM, a few others. And um, um, it was just phenomenal. I got to work directly with Steve Jobs on the launch of the original iMac, um, eventually the original iBook as well. And uh, and the iBook was the, the clamshell laptop, right? Like that was the, there was different correct. colors too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it, those those two products laid the groundwork for rebooting the whole company, right? Like that that crazy product matrix, if you look as a case study from business, like really complex uh, lineup of products in 96. And then by the time we were done in 98, 99, it was down to really four core products, right? It was basically consumer and pro and then uh, portable and desktop. And that was it. That was the simplification that that Steve really brought and that discipline that quite frankly, at some level still sticks today in a product lineup. So the question that I have, and I know most people listening to this would want to know is like, what was it like working with Steve Jobs and preparing for a launch? I mean, the legendary launches, and we're going to talk about an even more legendary launch soon, but what was, what's that process like and experience like? Well, the thing that I loved about it is, you know, the behind the scenes part and just how hands-on and detail-oriented Steve was with this. And, you know, I have to say, like, obviously my experience with Steve was the second tenure at Apple. So I know nothing about pre-next days and all of that, but he was just a joy to work with. I mean, it was just uh, um, a lot of fun in very challenging times. And then I, as, as you know, I left for about five years, which is a really interesting side side journey that we'll talk about in a second. And then coming back again and just seeing that evolution of the process and, you know, kind of the company kind of getting its, its rhythm going, but it, it took years and years and people kind of forget like just the, the elements that, um, again, he laid the groundwork for in the late nineties. And that is again, in a lot of ways, still true today of how Apple treats product efforts and launches. So then you went off to what was like the start of a smartphone. I put my hands in air quotes of what I certainly remember, uh, you know, the handspring, you went to work at handspring, which was the creator of the trio, which, you know, that was one of the first phones with an actual keyboard and it had applications on it. It was the beginning of the smartphone era. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's with the air quotes, uh, to be fair to our team at Handspring, we literally coined the term smartphone at that time. Did you Keep really? In mind, okay. back, yeah. Back in that time, remember there was pagers, right? And these small mobile phones. And then people had these personal digital assistants like Palm, um, Palm devices. I had a and, Palm. <laughs> yeah, and RIM, Research in Motion, they had basically a pager is really what it was originally. 
And we integrated the wireless technology first with the PDA called Advisor, and then that became the prototype for what became the Trio product line, which had you know, direct internet connectivity, web browsing, direct email access, uh, app store, like all the elements that you would consider a modern day smartphone uh, were there in a trio. And it was funny because back then all these brilliant analysts were just talking about how nobody's going to buy these high-end niche products and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then with Jeff Hawkins, we we're like, no, like literally the future of computing is in your hands. And uh, we became the fastest growing company in history at Handspring with, with the Trio product line. And um, this a fun little side story with Apple that um, I won't talk about here, but uh, there's a really good uh, overview that Dieter uh, ended up doing with the Handspring team that you should check out, which is like the birth of the smartphone and um, kind, of, kind of a fun set of backstories, including uh, a set of discussions we had with Steve, Phil, and Jaws at Apple when I was on the handspring side of things with Jeff Hawkins and Ed Culligan. But really, it laid the groundwork for the modern smartphone re revolution, and we um, were pretty proud of the, what we were able to do there, which was phenomenal. Okay, I mean, you had a very important role as you know, leading product management, business development, developer relations. So that must have been a really interesting period of time because, like you said, there's media that's like, people will never buy these things. This is insane. Yet people were adopting them left and right. And it became, you know, as you highlighted, the fastest growing company in history at that point in time. So like, what was it like being part of that revolution of, you know, computing and, you know, becoming more handheld? Well, I think the, um, the team at Palm already knew the basic elements of handheld computing. The, the big, jump that we made with the trio is integrating native connectivity to wireless networks right and on the, both on the data and on the calling side of things so uh i have to give tremendous credit to donna dubinsky uh definitely a phenomenal ceo with jeff and ed and just really having this vision of how to tie these disparate computing devices that everybody was carrying around and clipped to their belts to kind of put it in one product and Honestly, that was the inspiration for the name Trio, right? It was really getting rid of the pager, getting rid of the mobile phone, uh, getting rid of the, the handheld computer, the, the PDA, and putting them all into one device that we, we said, it's like, hey, those are dumb phones. We'll call this the smartphone. I, I remember that analyst meeting. It was kind of fun. So, Okay, so you went through this explosive growth, um, and this was leading up to 2004, so five years and you return to Apple. Okay, so now the second stint at Apple, what was happening at that point in time that led to the iPhone? Yeah, it was it was interesting. So I, I have to say that I assume, so Apple in its, I would say typical fashion, they probably still do this a little bit today, um, didn't really, they just kept, telling me, it's like, hey, just trust us, come back. We've got a great product effort that you should really be a part of. And so working on a trio, I kind of externally assumed it was gonna be the phone, right? Like that's just, of course we're gonna do the phone. So I, um, I ended up accepting that um, and started in early 04. And I was kind of shocked that we weren't working on the phone. Um, we were working on some related software that um, I still can't really tell the story publicly about kind of what, what, what that was, <laughs> but it was, um, 
It was an interesting side story that took us, I, I would say, about a year to develop. And then with Tony Fidel, we were able to convince Steve that, you know what, this is not what we should be doing. We should, let's go focus on building the real phone. And that became the inception for the iPhone. Um, so there was a set of projects before that I think we're enough ammunition that we could you know, really just convince Steve that it's like, hey, the, the direction is this thing that Jeff Hawkins was kind of pitching you on, which is future of handheld computing is in your hands. It's going to be these smartphones. Let's go build that smartphone platform rather than taking the side route uh, with software, quite frankly. And um, anyhow, so that was an interesting year. We took that time, really got Apple up to speed on push email direct internet access, you're really using Trios as the, the platform to do that. Um, and that all kind of put came together, obviously, in 07 as what was just the incredible revolution that was launched with the iPhone. And I, I watched that recently on YouTube because it's just such a legendary presentation. A uh, keynote, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so amazing. So, I, so were you there for that? Like, were you part of the team that was part of that initial launch? Well, that was an interesting one because so you have to keep in mind. So I switched horses a little bit because personally, I kind of felt like if I was for whatever reason focused on the iPhone, what became the iPhone, I was probably going to spend the, spend the rest of my life maybe in lawsuits because of what we had done at, at Handspring. And there was some stuff that was an overlap. Mm -hmm. So with one of the senior execs that reported to Steve, I ended up focusing on home media. And it's funny, like uh, one of our engineers here at Spatial was part of that project from inception. So he and I started what became Apple TV. And um, we were at the keynote uh, prep, uh, but it was this, because it was the iPhone, there was like the split. We all knew it was coming, but the very first run through for the keynote um, Steve wanted a very isolated, very small team. We were on a different product at that time. But then the final two or three reviews were all together. And so just, just seeing that progression and then how excited Steve was about launching that into the world. I mean, it really, you look at it, what a seminal product. And obviously Steve knew it at the time and uh, just the excitement that he had. Um, so yes, we were, we were at the, the keynote setups and then the keynote itself was just like, obviously uh, an amazing piece of history. Amazing piece of history. Such a fanboy of that. So um, <laughs> that's so cool. And then so Apple TV, which is a great product as well. I mean, that's massive consumer adoption and a, it's, it's been really cool to see how, uh, you know, Apple TV and their, you know, production studio now and what they're doing, you know, behind all that is pretty astonishing. So what was the thought, like kind of getting that started, right? Like the Apple TV, like, you know, so what was the thought there of, you know, just entering people's living rooms? You know, what's interesting is when Ryder and I really started that, a lot of what we were trying to do is just starting to be delivered today because uh, one of the, the things that was always difficult is how, how do you tie not just on-demand media, which obviously we wanted to do based on, you know, we had this history around music, obviously, but for video content, it was clearly going to be on-demand, watch whatever you want, when you want to. But the trick was, how do we get live TV into that? And the early prototypes of Apple TV actually had that. The issue is, like, literally, you know, there's still, um, I, I would say, dealing with the, the issues of how do you get live content and live rights. And, you know, sports is a good example of this, right? Like, it's such a fractured 
uh, industry, depending on who has the rights for what, depending on what league, and every country is somewhat different. Um, so those things are just incredibly complicated things. I think we, we probably, as a product team, we underestimated that, but the, the experience as it came together is still something that I see pieces of Apple TV evolving towards it, which is ironic because now it's, you know, since we kicked off that project, it's, you know, a solid 17 years later. You know, so. oh, that's crazy. 17 years later. Uh, all right. So you worked on some other things too. Like, I mean, we could just probably make this a whole podcast about Apple, but after you did, you did move on and you founded a company called FitView, which what, what was FitView all about? Well, it was um, initially, so one of the things that I worked on when I was at Apple was the, the early parts of what's now um, HealthKit. And so it's really tying together a common view from an individual standpoint of your health um, from a you know fitness nutrition standpoint, kind of what you do personally, and then with the professionals that deal with that and like really putting those elements together. And at FitView, I have to say, like when when um, when I left Apple, I, I would say it's been a while, right? I hadn't done a startup from scratch um, since college days, and I think we we were trying to tackle something that um, is pretty close to what's happening, kind of in the overall health space, where you're finally able to tie medical records and personal records and have your control over your your view of life. Um, you know, quite frankly, we're, we're probably too early for that. The medical part of it was just a nightmare. Like people did not understand the implications of how complicated HIPAA and HIPAA rules kind of made that part of it. Um, and because of that, it was, it was just a real struggle. So we never really got traction, um, with that effort. I'm, I'm still proud of what we did, but, um, it never really went anywhere solidly. But the, um, cause we, you were still at Apple when they announced the initial watch, right? Actually, I wasn't. No, you weren't. Okay, so, so it's just been, um, so it was just starting to come all together with the watch and everything. Yeah, in fact, it's ironic if you look back and you can do a patent search on the early patents that are um, basically what's become HealthKit and kind of the underlying infrastructure for the health uh, aspects of what Apple is doing today. And those images were actually with iPods in them because we couldn't even show the touchscreen yet. Like we knew the touchscreen was coming out. So it's kind of funny. You have early patent drawings that showed like iPods, uh, which is pretty <laughs> funny to think about now. So it's funny. Okay. So then uh, from there, you worked on um, Live Minds. So that was, uh, a, a, we had a friend, actually, one of the designers that worked on Apple TV, went to another startup and Honestly, I needed to step back and take a bit of a breather after FitView because it was like, okay, just regroup here a little bit, learn. Uh, and then we were just doing some, um, uh, you know, pretty cool projects alive where we were tying together kind of the memory stream of people's photos and videos and putting it all together regardless of what device that they were on. Um, and phenomenal team, uh, great execution overall on that. That got acquired by Seagate actually because there's a, huge uh, storage component of it. Um, um, you know, you know. quite frankly, after Apple, I was kind of spoiled. So I was like, I'm not going to go to another big company unless it's something of the caliber of Apple. So I decided to move on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So like that reminded me of, um, you know, you'd have like your central hub in your house, a big storage. Like I always envisioned, which I know this isn't what happened, but at one point I was like, there's going to be a big like storage uh, 
unit in everyone's house that's going to be their media files of their you know movies and music and photos uh obviously everything went to the cloud but i uh, i was convinced that there would be that kind of hub in your in your basement somewhere serving up to your tvs yeah and, and part of it was also it, it's something that you know still resonates today which is privacy right it's like wh where do you want to store your life's memories right and it, it was definitely something that's trusted if you have control over it and I would say on the cloud services there, you know, you can count on one hand and on maybe one or two fingers where you want to trust your, your life's memories company-wise, right? It's, you know, most of the companies that have cloud storage solutions monetize the information that is stored in those systems. And if it's your private, you know, aspects of what you do in life, that is a trust relationship that I just don't think is there. Um, so I think that that still resonates today, even in the cloud world, regardless of where the actual storage is. All right, on to the next stop. And then we're going to talk about the company we are currently focused on, but one more. So PodTech, what was the details on PodTech? Yeah, so this is this is something that I'm still, um, I would say, and every investor that's involved with me, as well as my whole team, knows that this is something I'm still passionate about. So um, we were just looking at, so I have two daughters, both of them very active. We did a bunch of like activities, including mountain biking, dirt biking, things like that, and uh, various sports. And, and a, a large number of those things that we were doing were wearing helmets. And um, one of my daughters had a, a, a pretty significant concussive events at one point. And then um, unfortunately I had a friend of mine that lost his son skiing um, at, um, at North Star. And um, this is something that if, if there was the knowledge of where he was knocked out, it would have saved his life. And so to me, it's just, you kind of look at modern technologies, it's insane that you have essentially something that you're at risk as a human being, you're, you're purposely putting on a helmet, you know you're at risk, Yet there's no intelligence about those products, right? So we were building essentially intelligent smart helmets. Um, it's a different state today because I think I have a better network now. But at the time, I really had a hard time trying to find the right venture capital partners that, quite frankly, cared about saving human lives. And uh, so we kind of bootstrapped it. But you know, this is a there's a software aspect, but there's a hardware play. So it, it takes real capital to do that properly. We did end up doing early projects with Easton Bell Sports, who's you know some of the top brands in helmet world, like Juro helmets, Bell helmets, et cetera. And um, unfortunately, they were taken apart by a private equity investor. Um, so our project that was supposed to launch at a Winter Olympics uh, never saw the light of day. Um, but anyhow, we kind of kept the IP in our back pockets, and this is something that I'm still passionate about that eventually I'd love to come back around to and, and see become real. We just see how technology develops so much faster that, you know, this type of awareness is now an Apple watch commercial, you know, exactly. for people being stranded and using their watch to contact, you know, medical authorities and stuff. So exactly. And it saves lives, which is phenomenal. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So we're finally on to the company that you've been working hard at for the last four years, Spatial. Uh, so what is Spatial and talk about, you know, how did the idea come to fruition? Sure. So uh, to talk about spatial, we have to talk about Michael Plitkins, our um, our co-founder. And Michael had this vision for building an immersive space in the Bay Area. And he, he wanted that space to feel like it was a South Pacific island. 
Um, he knew he can do a great job in terms of kind of like the, the landscape architecture, the kind of the overall design, but a couple of things like, you know, the weather obviously in the Bay Area wasn't exactly going to be a South Pacific Island. Um, you know, sometimes it would be, but not, not as often as he'd probably like. And then it just wasn't going to sound right. And he, he has been responsible for a bunch of work back to like early VR days, back in, you know, early generation browsers. Uh, he had done voice interface work at a company called Tell Me that was acquired by Microsoft. And then he was a founding engineer at Nest, which is how we ended up getting connected for Spatial. And uh, that obviously got acquired by Google. And um, Michael really wanted to kind of like rethink how immersive audio was built because um, he had talked to some Imagineers, he had talked to other people doing experience design and just realized that in the visual world, like if you look at what's happening with visuals and modern game engines like Unity or Unreal, they've had decades of evolution that they've built off where visuals went from very basic to hyper-realistic to the point that you almost can't tell the difference from real world anymore. In fact, movies are shot with unreal backgrounds behind uh, actors now, right? Like The Mandalorian is a good example of that. And um, why hasn't the same thing happened with sound? And there's a bunch of core reasons why not, uh, but he became convinced that this is gonna be an interesting technology area. And then he contacted Tony Fidel, who was the founder of Nest. And Tony, of course, knew me from the iPhone days. And he's like, hey, you guys should connect. So that was the connection, which was fun. And um, yeah, so fast forward, it'll be five years now in March that we had those initial conversations and we're building really a full vertical stack of software that allows people to deploy immersive soundscapes wherever they're building um, an experience that matters to the human beings in that space. So everything from retail to hospitality, we have museum customers, uh, all the way to theme parks, because of course, who doesn't love a theme park? Um, during the pandemic, we have estate owners that wanted to bring theme parks to their houses. Um, and I was like, you know, if if you're going to pay the same thing as Disney, who am I to say no? Um, <laughs> and then we have hospital groups that are deploying this for um, really health recovery reasons. So there's this really wide spectrum of applications that we're working on. And uh, yeah, we're just thrilled to be able to build the software backbone that's vertically integrated to allow this. Yeah, I mean, you talk about there's so many different use cases and experiences that it just enhances what the overall presence in the moment is. And so you mentioned Disney. So um, going through your website, so a lot of like, like, like be, this is a podcast. So some people probably don't know this, but behind you is the Millennium Falcon going through hyperspace. So does your software power that experience for, uh, you know, Galaxy Edge and, and the Star Wars components? Yeah, great question. So we actually met the, the Disney Imagineering team right when they were wrapping up Galaxy's Edge. And um, this is actually kind of the heart of what we do. So when we were talking to them, you know, obviously they, they were deploying Galaxy's Edge, which is the Star Wars experience in Southern California. And it's just an amazing experience. And as you probably know, they have this one other little theme park in Florida. Um, so they, they wanted to do Galaxy's Edge there as well. So using traditional tools, these kind of, I, I would say, um, uh, you know, relatively proprietary tools that they were mixing together, 
they had to go back to Abbey Road Studio and re-record the audio for the Florida version of the theme park because it was different. The speaker layout was different. The experience was somewhat different because of that, even though thematically it was identical. And um, from our perspective, that's insane. And, and by the way, even Disney today, post-pandemic in Imagineering, can't really afford to go do that at that scale. Um, uh, so why does that happen? And part of it is because the tools were never really built to allow for real immersive soundscapes in a in kind of a 3D object-based world. Like people use these terms around uh, modern audio, but the truth is if you look under the hood, most of this is channel-based audio still. So we're fundamentally broke down all those assumptions and built spatial from the ground up to allow for deployments of something like Galaxy's Edge everywhere from a small room like this all the way to a theme park without fundamental changes on the creative side, which dramatically reduces costs and ability to deploy. And this could be used in like offices and like hotels. This isn't just theme parks, right? This is, I mean, this is probably going to be something that we'll see all over the place. And from what I gathered in the, another product launch, I think I saw when I was researching more about your background, is it something that you feel and sense, but you don't know it's there until it, it actually turns off. And then it's all of a sudden you're like, oh, that was an experience that you didn't even consciously know that was happening. Yeah, you, you, you're keying into something really um, fundamental here where, uh, again, the, if you, the sense of sound is, is fundamental. It's the, one of the first senses that gets fired up before you're actually even born. I mean, you have you know, partial memories of the womb, basically, before you're, you know, you're born into the world and then, then you get the reality of the real world and visuals kind of take over, but that the, a lot of the biology and how you react to the world around you is based on very subtle sound cues. And obviously those are sound cues that are directional, so spatialized. And uh, a lot of the experiences we build, especially as you mentioned, like in corporate settings for campus environments, is very subtle soundscapes. Like you don't realize you're being influenced by the soundscapes, but what that does is helps you focus or be more calm in certain environments or get energized because it's time to get energized as a team. And we can do that in an intelligent way. Um, so obviously the theme parks are fun because they're kind of over the top thematic, but a lot of the, the soundscapes that we work with are very subtle that you don't even realize that they're actually active until, to your point, you turn it off and all of a sudden like, the room shape snaps to a different dimension. It's like, wow, what does it feel so echoey and cold in here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So Spatial just announced a Series B round of funding and your investors, you know, kind of highlights the interest of where this is going with Fenway Sports Group, the Craft Group, Marquee Sports Holdings. So, you know, th these are entities that are all, you know, world-class as it relates to what your technology is doing. Yeah, no, it, it, we couldn't be more thrilled to be working with these, these teams. And one of the fundamental aspects that we, we always knew that we could take this to stadium scale experiences for live events and uh, whether that's sports, music, concerts, et cetera, festivals. Um, the issue for us has been like, how do you prototype at that scale? And um, this is a discussion we had with, you know, Mike Gordon, who's the president of Fenway Sports Group, in the, their various properties, um, you know, obviously the team at the craft group and same is true for Marquee Sports Holding. And it was like, we'd like to work with the leading teams in this area to prototype these larger scale experiences and fan experiences and figure out how we could take the 
core technology of spatial and scale it up to stadium scale. So we're, I would say, early in that process. We're excited about that. Um, there's no question in my mind we're going to have some just phenomenal experiences that we're going to be bringing to fans around the world. And we, the cool thing is we get to do this across different sporting domains because of these investors. And then another investor that I thought was super interesting is National Geographic Society. So what's, what's their involvement? Yeah, no, that's great. So actually National Geographic, along with Double Bottom Line Ventures and Bidcraft were involved from our Series A. So actually a few years ago, and in National Geographic's case, it really is, you, you look at, they have this 115 plus year history of capturing stories of the world, telling it through storytelling and visuals, you know, first through the magazine and then obviously now through all the visual assets that they have. But a, a piece of this that was missing is what about the audio? What about these environments in the world that you might not hear the same way in another 15, 20, 30 years? How do we capture that? How do we work on that? So strategically, it's, I would say at that level, and then uh, more tactically, it really is around experiences that we can bring to life in their museums, um, as well as some, some pretty cool projects that we have coming up. And then Jill, the, the, the current CEO of National Geographic, she's just amazing and has a great uh, background as an educator. And She's very excited about bringing kind of the, the magic of sound and soundscapes as part of curriculum in the future to, um, you know, kids of all ages. I mean, they work with over a million teachers around, I think, just in North America alone. So just couldn't think of a better um, uh, partner to really work with on, on these projects. Now, what's the plan in terms of growth ahead, uh, hiring and growing the company? Well, it, it, it's uh, never a dull moment. It's challenging, as you know, um, hiring environment right now. Over the last year, we've uh, roughly doubled the team um, in spite of the pandemic. And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of on a, a, a pretty exciting growth path. But I think that's something that culturally that's always a challenge. Brings me back to some lessons that were hard earned and learned from Donna at Handspring which is like when you're going through these high growth periods, how do you just maintain team culture properly and just make sure you're doing a great job and paying attention to that as well. So it's, um, we're in that, we're in the thick of it, but um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. It's just, a, you know, it's a constant challenge, quite frankly, especially with more distributed teams as it exists today. Well, this is probably something you'll be like, obviously there's studies to this, but I'm going to ask an obvious question. So are there studies that prove like with the future of work, right? And how offices are designed, like, is it um, the use of sound have a significant impact as it relates to overall culture, happiness and productivity of workers? Absolutely. And there's you know, this area and also in, you know, in the medical space as well for health recovery, there is decades of research around how audio and acoustics impacts work environments and um, productivity and in the medical case, you know, health recovery from various indications. What, what's been the challenge is how do you effectively deploy a solution that actually helps with that, right? Like, so the science is definitely there. Um, What's been challenged is to do something interesting that's, um, I would say, live in a way that makes it feel like it's non-repetitive, right? Because as a human being, if you hear repeating loops, 
after so much time, a few times after you've heard that, you, you remember that loop. So all of a sudden the artifice or the kind of the magic of whatever that might sound like falls apart. So what we try to do at Spatial is have these soundscapes that are ever evolving and ever changing. So if you're in a corporate environment, you may never hear the same thing over a year, 24 seven, 365. Some of these soundscapes run constantly and they're influenced by sensor input in a real time manner. Like, uh, also, like what time of day is it? What's the weather, et cetera. And all these things affect our mood, our ability to focus, our sense of uh, stress or calm, right? So depending on what you're trying to do, there's a lot of science behind this. And um, the reality is that, you know, our, I would say our leading customers in the corporate space realize that, that this future of work, as we're all calling it, is going to be very different than what we saw two, three years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you use a corporate campus to maximize the impact of productivity and innovation when teams are together, right? And then in the hybrid portion of that, they can also be productive remotely as well, but you know we know that there's trade-offs where teams don't work as well remotely. Um, so what, what's the best of both worlds, I would say? So we're trying to influence the together part as much as possible. Now you've you know spent uh, a number of years at Apple. You know what most considered the most innovative company. You've been with lots of startups and founded companies. So how do you keep the culture of innovation together as a company as it scales and not lose that you know overall innovative appetite? Yeah, I think to me it starts from the people that you hire. Um, you know, I, I think this is something that you know, the best CEOs are involved with at every level. Um, maybe to an extreme, you look at in here, I have, I've never worked with Elon Musk, but supposedly, and I, I know from a couple of friends of mine that, you know, he may, he still interviews every single person that's going in, um, uh, certainly to SpaceX and in most cases to Tesla, which is kind of insane considering how big those companies so are. So insane. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I have to say that reminds me a lot of Steve Jobs' attention to detail. It's just, mm -hmm. it matters at the individual human level first. And then that culture of innovation is every person in the company, like this isn't about anointing somebody as your innovation lead or officer, right? It really is get everybody on board to think about how their their point of view can influence the direction of the company, whether it's product or business development or customer support, all of those aspects have innovative aspects of what you're doing in um, the, those roles. And they all kind of come together in the whole experience is how outside people perceive your company. So to me, that the um, I would say the role of innovation is across every single person in the entity. And I think you have to start at the hiring aspect of it and kind of cut it across as, as people kind of expand their roles as the company grows. All right, some quick hit questions. Uh, three apps you can't live without. Jeez, <laughs> uh, uh, three apps. So um, before I got into computers, I wanted to be an astronomer. So I, I'd say Sky Guide is probably my favorite current app, which is just like visualizing the, the star field at any time so I can just enjoy that. Um, that's awesome. Um, uh, future kicks my ass. So I have kind of remote coaching. So I travel a lot. And what I've realized is that I'll find every excuse not to work out. And uh, which is ironic considering I, I started FitView years ago. Um, so anyhow, so future, I have this remote coach that kind of keeps on top of me and uh, make sure I don't um, find excuses as I'm traveling. And uh, she just 
And then I just love getting out into nature. Um, so going off-roading and there's this app called Onyx um, Off-Road that just has all these, like wherever you are, there's like cool trails around. So even if I'm in a rental car, or I should say probably, especially if I'm in a rental car, you know, it's kind of fun to explore some back roads. How about a podcast or book recommendation? <laughs> um, so I would say on the book side, Jeff Hawkins book that he released last year, you know, obviously um, there's this long story about Jeff, how um, he really built Palm and Handspring to enable himself to do research on how the human brain works. So he has this book called A Thousand Brains that came out last year and just a phenomenal book. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I'm definitely a fan of SpaceX. Uh, got to tour the factory. It's phenomenal. So there's this book called Liftoff about the development and the stress that the company went through to build the first Falcon 1 rocket. And just an amazing set of stories about what that team did, regardless to just make that like literally take off. And if it didn't, that company wouldn't exist. And, you know, humanity might have a very different path. So that was great. Uh, and a little bit more kind of sci-fi fun, I'd say uh, Project Hail Mary um, from Andy Weir. It's just kind of a, a fun, warm story about, you know, human meets alien tries to save earth, tries to save alien planet. Pretty cool. So, so um, fast forward, um, we can travel to Mars. Are you going? Um, we are definitely taking the sounds of earth to Mars. Um, so that will be part of the, the journey. Um, I think it depends a little bit. I'll have to talk to my daughters and uh, grandkids, <laughs> but if it was up to me strictly, uh, I think Monique and I would definitely be going. Yes. All right. Well, one last question. So what do you like to do outside of uh, work? You did highlight a couple of those things already with your app recommendations, but what else do you like to do? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I love live events. Uh, I'm going to one of my favorite bands and concerts uh, next week. And just, it's such a blast to be back in that environment. We we're, we're lucky enough to be at another concert um, uh, last year and then went to a Liverpool game uh, late last year. And that energy that you get again with human beings together, just thrilled to be back in that environment. So that's phenomenal. And then um, just kind of getting out of nature in whatever form that might take, whether, like I mentioned, four wheeling, I love motorcycling. So that's a lot of fun hiking generally. So um, anything to, you know, I, I love computing, obviously I love this interaction, but it is nice to kind of take a break mentally and just get back into nature um, and uh, enjoy. Very cool. Well, Callan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, uh, all your experiences in the development of these things called iPhones and the trios and the walk down memory lane, which is always fun. I'm such a historian, all the companies that you've been a part of and, you know, really excited to see what happens with spatial. Hey, really appreciate this. It's been great. And, uh, we'd love to have you actually experience spatial. I don't know if you can sneak out to South by Southwest and Austin in a few weeks, but I think it'd be worth it if you can uh, make that happen. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.